The last two years disrupted many aspects of higher education and the educational technology market and the relationship between colleges and companies are no exception. Hello, and welcome to The Key, Inside Higher Ed's news and analysis podcast. I'm Doug Letterman, Inside Higher Ed's editor and co-founder and host of The Key. Thanks for listening. This is the second episode in a three-part series about the current state of digital teaching and learning, which was made possible in part by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Last week's episode featured two researchers exploring how recent exposure to online and virtual instruction has altered faculty and student interest in using technology in learning and how colleges are responding. This week, I'm joined by two people who have, through a variety of roles, sat at the intersection of where technology meets teaching and learning. Kara Monroe is founder of Monarch Strategies, a consulting firm she founded early this year after 25 years as an academic administrator at Ivy Tech Community College in Indiana. Kelvin Bentley is senior consultant at WGU Labs, where he works with companies that want to help colleges and universities educate students at scale. Over 25 years, he has worked with a range of public two-year and four-year colleges and multiple ed tech companies. In the conversation that follows, we'll talk about how well the many hundreds of ed tech companies that work with colleges, professors, and students meet the needs of the institutions and their people, where they fall short, and how they can do better. Here's Kara Monroe. I would put the focus on the people. I think where the situation works the best, particularly, Doug, since you're focused really on the software that enables teaching and learning, you've got to have a company that understands that we have to get faculty really interested and engaged in using a tool, that they want to support that endeavor, that they want to relate to faculty, that they want to work with faculty, um, and that they're willing to bring in people who who can't, who faculty can relate to and who they want to work with. Some of the best companies are ones who have taken folks from the faculty ranks and made them a part of their team because then they speak the same language as faculty. Before we begin the conversation with Kelvin Bentley of WGU Labs and Kara Monroe of Monarch Strategies, here's a word from the Gates Foundation. This episode of The Key is brought to you by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, working to ensure that race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status are no longer predictors of educational success. Learn more about the Foundation's work to improve digital teaching and learning, advance institutional transformation, and more at usprogram.gatesfoundation.org. Now on to today's discussion. Karen Kelvin, welcome to The Key, and thanks for being here. Can you tell our listeners a little about your backgrounds and how you come at this conversation and maybe share a bit about your philosophy about the role of technology in teaching and learning? Kara, start with you, maybe. Thanks again for having us, Doug. I had another conversation with someone else earlier today, and um, I'm going to borrow a phrase from that conversation, which is, Technology should enable us to automate some of the lower order process skills that we tend to spend a lot of time on in higher education, a lot of the transactional processes that happen to make higher ed occur. It allows us to automate those so that we can spend time on those higher order skills and on those higher order activities, like the relationship management with our students and our faculty, which is the most important. And is that true in the teaching and learning process as well? And can you maybe give an example of how that works? Absolutely. So I come at this, I come at everything as a mathematics educator. That was my original training. And so it's still a foundational core of who I am. 
And I, I think about a part of mathematics is, is drill, it's repetition, it's practice, it's learning to use the algorithms so that we can spend time on the problem solving. If I can use technology to help students work themselves through whatever they're struggling with in terms of the mechanics of the algorithm, so that we can spend more time on the project-based and problem-based learning. That's the beauty of where technology can really help in that teaching and learning process. Kelvin, uh, welcome you into the conversation. Technology has a place uh, in different areas, right? I think it definitely needs to be uh, a tool, right? So I don't think we should always just lead with the technology and hope for the best. I think there's still a lot of wishful thinking uh, magical thinking about what technology can do or what we hope it can do for us. And I think we need to do a better job of really figuring out what it can do for us, collect better data, and be much more transparent across our institutions about what's working and what's not working. I don't think we should wait for journal articles about all of this to come out. I think there needs to be almost kind of like a, a yearly update where institutions go through a process of really doing kind of a post-mortem and actually describing, okay, what technologies do we actually use, first of all, because I think that's still an open question. And then what impact did it have on pedagogy? What impact did it have on saving faculty members time and their busy schedules? What impact did it have on supporting you know, the, the wraparound services that we want to provide students, regardless of the modality of the courses they take? And I don't think we do enough of that. And so if we could do more of that in terms of our reflection on the use of technology, I think that would be helpful. Can you maybe each of you give a little bit of a sense of the role that you are playing now or have recently played in, in Kara's case and how you came at this set of issues in that role and, and maybe going a little bit further back in your career, but sort of what are the ways in which your roles had, had you address and confront this set of issues? I served as uh, provost and senior vice president of student experience and academic experience at Ivy Tech Community College for three years and had roles of increasing responsibility at Ivy Tech for the 20 years prior to that. I've always sat at a place where I was the bridge between technology and the business of teaching and learning. So whatever those processes were that we were trying to enable with technology, I sat there and, and translated those for folks. Later on in my in my role as I moved up in the in the frame, it was about enabling us to use the technology as well as possible. And I, I love what Kelvin said about that portfolio of tools and what do we actually use and what does it do? Because one of the frames that I brought to that thinking was, are we using everything we can in this tool or is there, a, are we not using it and we should be? And do we need to get rid of some of these because we're really not using them to our advantage? And that comes with a lot of change management that you have to do. In my role today at Monarch Strategies, I'm still doing many of the same kinds of things. My consultancy is around helping institutions and individuals become the very best that they can be. So I'm applying some of those same frameworks with clients now. Um, it's just a, a different set of people that I'm working with every day. Kelvin, tell just a little bit about yourself and how you come at this set of issues. For the past 20 plus years, I've been in higher education in various roles. 
I've been a faculty member, an administrator of online learning initiatives at community colleges, private and public universities. And so, especially in those roles, I've had to, you know, be the person to say, okay, we have online learning programs. So what types of tools will we use to support them? What types of technologies could we use to provide um, access to things like online tutoring and online proctoring? In a couple of roles, I was the, the kind of the executive sponsor of, you know, partnering with the right technology companies to provide those services because they didn't exist, right? And so now in my role at WGU Labs, I serve as a senior consultant where I'm actually working with early stage ed tech companies. So it gives me an opportunity to kind of take my previous experiences and, and almost kind of be the higher ed voice to help guide them in terms of how they market themselves to, to certain institutions and not just, again, focus on, hey, we're awesome, but really helping them to dive more deeply to hopefully establish really mutually beneficial relationships with the right partners. Historically, how successfully do you think the ed tech market has served higher education? I would judge the companies by how well they help institutions meet their own needs. How do you judge their performance in that way, particularly on the teaching and learning side of things? Kelvin? I would say that for the most part, the, the, the vendors that I've worked with, I was able to find the right individuals to really kind of listen and to provide the support that we needed beyond the basic sales pitch, right? Just trust us. We'll provide you a service as long as you pay your bills. And so I was able to kind of find a, a value add beyond what we originally hired them to do. And I would put the focus on the people. I think where the situation works the best, particularly, Doug, since you're focused really on the software that enables teaching and learning, you've got to have a company that understands that we have to get faculty really interested and engaged in using a tool, that they want to support that endeavor, that they want to relate to faculty, that they want to work with faculty, um, and that they're willing to bring in people who who can't who faculty can relate to and who they want to work with. Some of the best companies are ones who have taken folks from the faculty ranks and made them a part of their team because then they speak the same language as faculty. I think the other place where that personal relationship works the best with those who work in the higher ed space is, and I know in, in higher ed, you know, it's it's mostly consultative selling. That's what they it's what most of the vendors in higher ed will tell you they do, but most some are better at it than others. And so when they really do, when my salesperson or my client representative or whatever they call them really listens to me and understands what my problem or my challenge is, and then doesn't just try to make my challenge fit their solution but instead says, hey, I know I just talked to Kelvin and he's working on a problem like this. Let me make an introduction for you so that you could talk to him because the people are going to solve the problem. The technology is just a tool in the toolbox. And companies that admit that, they're the companies that are doing well. Those that come in and say, we're going to solve all your problems and here are all the benefits we're going to help you do. I, I've grown tired of working with them. Describe the consultative approach that's that's real? Like what, what does that look like? I can think of three or four of the best customer relationship folks that I've worked with who I'm dear friends with and will call when I'm having a challenge with something and say, hey, as you've talked to your other clients, 
Is there anybody else in the community college space who's dealing with this? And it may have no relevance to their product whatsoever. They are boots on the ground across the entire higher education space, listening to the challenges that I face, that Kelvin faces, that all of our colleagues face. And if they can help us make connections to one another, that's great. If their product happens to help us do that, even better, but they go beyond, I'm just trying to sell you something and make my quarterly goal. They're really trying to create a relationship with you. Someone who really wants to be less of a vendor and more of a partner, right? So someone who wants to form a partnership and that takes time, that takes trust on both sides. It takes transparency. Also a company that's willing to walk away if they can't actually solve your use case. One of these days, we won't have to ask about the impact of the pandemic, but we're a ways away from that right now, I fear. We know most institutions intensified their use of technology in delivering education during the last two years. What's your sense of how that altered or didn't the relationship or the balance of power between ed tech companies and institutions? I think at the beginning of the pandemic, when everybody rushed to go online and, and do emergency remote instruction, there were a lot of vendors who stepped forward, made their products free, offered them at a discount, provided tools so that institutions that weren't enabled already could become enabled. And I, I talked about this several times at Ivy Tech, that we were very lucky in that we had an excellent foundation already existing, already in place to build on. We had video technology licenses, we had learning management system licenses, we had all of those things, robust training, all of that. It was still hard for us. So the technology vendors stepped up and did their part, which is say, this is a weird situation that we hope to never go through again. We're going to make our product available to you. Beyond that, I think everybody maybe hoped or thought that institutions would use this as a learning opportunity and an exploration opportunity and even where it was appropriate, a capacity building opportunity. And we look at all of the money that the federal government poured into institutions of higher education through the HERF dollars. Institutions that, in, and again, this is my perspective because I do think technology is an important tool in the learning process. Institutions that I think used those dollars well made investments into investing in technology that could help if a similar situation arose in the future. And we don't know that we're done with COVID-based quarantine. I hope we are, but we don't know that for sure yet. But I just facilitated a session last week with some educational technology leaders from across higher education. And what many of them are saying is, everybody just wants to get back to normal. So higher education, I've, I've said this for years, I'll continue to say it, we're not very good at our own core business, which is learning. Uh, because we don't learn from our own experiences as higher education institutions and try to take what we learned about COVID and build it into the teaching and learning process in a more robust way. Um, everybody really is just trying to get back to normal. Institutions as a whole, I don't think have used COVID for the positive, the small amount of positive that this horrible situation could have had for us. This episode of The Key is brought to you by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, working to ensure that race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status are no longer predictors of educational success. Learn more about the Foundation's work to improve digital teaching and learning 
advance institutional transformation, and more at usprogram.gatesfoundation.org. I'm speaking today with Kara Monroe of Monarch Strategies and Kelvin Bentley of WGU Labs. I wanted to go next to the question of the faculty view of technology in the teaching and learning process. Even pre-pandemic, as there was sort of increased adoption, or at least more and more faculty members teaching a course online, et cetera, we weren't really seeing significant increases in the belief in the value of online education, and a lot of continued skepticism about the role of technology. And I'm curious how much that the pandemic and, and the sort of forced experimentation changed that. I still think is remains a little bit of an open question, although I certainly from a lot of my conversations, I sense that people have seen some movement. To what do you attribute the historical and to the extent it's continuing, continued faculty's skepticism about the role of technology and the motivations of both technology companies and of administrators who, you know, are perceived as sort of pushing technology as the answer, a major part of the answer. It's a weird problem because I think we tackle it in, in sometimes in a non-systematic way or systemic way, right? You might have a dean who says, Yes, you know, we need to, I just, you know, came back from a conference or I just heard about this particular type of technology. We need to use it as a school or as a department or or on a micro level, right? Where faculty say, hey, I, I have the same, I have this tool, I want to use it. And we're not really having a very strategic conversation about what should we use uh, within departments or institutionally. Um, and then, you know, how, what data will we actually track? to know whether or not it's actually made a difference in the lives of students and the lives of faculty and our ability to actually be this, you know, institution of higher learning of high quality, right? Like we're not doing as much work there because things are still very siloed. And then it depends, right, on the executive sponsor or the faculty member. One thing that still is uh, unclear to me is the tenure and promotion process. There's maybe not enough incentives built in the current TNP policies that would actually get more faculty excited. I want to build on something Kelvin said in his response, though, to answer your question, Doug, about why is why is online education, high quality online education still viewed so inquisitively, I guess, is the, is the kindest word. <laughs> that, is a kind, that is a very kind it's word. Very I was going to say word. skeptically, but you're, yes, you're, that's probably uh, the more yeah. accurate word. Thank you. And I, I think it is really around what Kelvin said about the strategy. I've talked with institutions in my new role as a consultant who a decade ago made strategic decisions to not do online instruction. And they're now looking at that decision and going, oh my gosh, what did we do? We can't get that last decade back. And then I look at my former employer that used online instruction as an enormous growth opportunity, but didn't put all the quality checkpoints in place along the line. I think that that conversation around the strategy has to leverage both of those pieces. 
It has to leverage the why are we doing this and how well will we do it and say that we're doing it as well as we can, given the resources that we have. No one's ever going to be perfect, but you've got to have both of those conversations and you've got to have alignment around both of those conversations. And not many institutions take the time to really have those good conversations and to have them in an ongoing way because unfortunately, whether we call it the great resignation or the great reshuffling, it started long before COVID and it's gonna continue long after COVID. And who was in place at an institution three years ago when we had that conversation the last time is not who's in place at that conversation now. And the lore behind these kinds of things is often so far removed from the truth of the conversation that actually occurred that a lot of clarification has to happen on an ongoing basis. How do institutions credibly make the case that A, they're going to place a bigger bet or, or make technology-enabled learning of some kind, whether it's online or, or blended. We think this needs to be a more fundamental part of our strategy or a fundamental part of our strategy to fulfill our mission. And we're going to make sure that we do it in that high quality way. Because I do think that some of this uh, inquisitiveness or skepticism about the role of technology in instruction is because faculty members or others are suspecting that their institutions are doing it as a tactic just to grow or and are going to cut corners. Now, figuring out where there really are cut corners versus where some faculty members are just saying, it's not what I'm used to doing, so it's got to be of lower quality, which is certainly a factor sometimes in, in all of this. But I'm curious how you think about what institutions can do to be credible on this. Kara, since you sort of raised those issues. The best way to do it, if you have the time and the attention and the ability to invest in it, is to let it come from the ground up. Where we had the most buy-in and the most success was when faculty members were advocates with their fellow colleagues around a particular thing, whether it was eight-week classes, open educational resources, that always brought the most success but you don't always have time for that. And so you try to enable those folks and you try to reward those folks to tell their stories more broadly and to share their stories more broadly to try to help ideas come to scale. When you do that though, and I think Doug, you answered your own question a little bit, there has to be strategy around it and there has to be some quality framework around it, whether it's OLC, whether it's QM, whether it's all of the above, it has to be in, and it has to be in line with your mission. And I'll use an example from Ivy Tech. At one time, Ivy Tech's leadership, not the current leadership, wanted to do online learning to as a growth strategy only and was not focused on Hoosiers. Um, and that was not in line with our mission at all. And it was it was a failure. I think failures are okay. It's okay to test that, but that's one where you should have said, maybe we shouldn't have even gone there because it was just not in line with our mission. And so I think you've got to look at the reality of the business very separately from what does our mission say we're going to do. And as long as you stay in line with your mission, you're probably okay. If you had a piece of advice or, or some advice for 
the many technology vendors and providers that want to operate in this teaching and learning space, what would you recommend they do or not do to best serve institutions, professors, students? Distance yourself as much as possible from salesy language. Sell without selling, right? Be a true, don't be a, don't be a vendor, be a partner. Be someone who's actively listening and not just active listen to current customers, right? Like even if someone says, hey, you know, we loved your product, but we picked this other product over here, find a way to stay in contact with, with those other folks because you can still learn something from them, right? They're evolving over time. So, and then I would also say for them to be more actively involved in professional organizations, not just as an exhibitor, but as someone who is participating in conversations, finding better ways also to work with your university, community college, HBCU partners to actually do better research around the product. And that could be through an advisory group, subgroups like that, or just baking in almost like a citizen science approach. You know, any school can kind of opt in to anonymized data to show how the technology is making an impact. I don't know if enough organizations are doing that, but I think we need to do more of that. And then of course, make that very transparent for anyone to find. Kelvin gave wonderful ideas. I can only build on those by adding to let your customers tell their stories because that's the most impactful. I care most about what Kelvin is doing, not what vendor Y is doing because we're colleagues. We know one another that trusted relationship already exists. And the other one is, I don't think enough institutions are paying attention to price and are paying attention to the cost of higher education. And so if we really want to have a strong conversation about access as a tool for social mobility in this country, then we've got to talk about the price of higher education because healthcare is an abysmal industry, in my personal opinion, and it is disappointing to me that higher education outpaces the cost increases in healthcare on a regular basis. That should not be the case. If we really want to democratize higher education, we've got to talk about price at every level. It's not just the role of the vendor. I used to tell vendors that I don't really care if you make a, a buck. That's not true anymore. I know that they need to make money in order to enable their work. And I recognize that now. I was wrong in that comment. But we all have to think about where our costs are and how we bring them down so that students can afford an education. That was Kelvin Bentley of WGU Labs and Kara Monroe of Monarch Strategies. Thanks to them for their insights, to the Bill and Belinda Gates Foundation for its support, and to all of you for listening today. During the conversation, I was struck, but not surprised, by Kara and Kelvin's focus on how essential it is for technology providers working with colleges and universities on teaching and learning to listen to and really understand what the institutions and the instructors are trying to do, the goals they have, the issues they're facing, the problems they're trying to solve. Only then are the companies going to have a real shot of being partners rather than vendors, as both of our guests encourage them to be. And only then is technology likely to become a fully integrated part of the teaching and learning process, rather than an add-on viewed 
inquisitively, as Carol Monroe so gently put it. That's all for this week's episode of The Key. In the last episode of this series, we'll take a look at how different types of colleges are rethinking how they incorporate digital technology into the teaching and learning they offer. I'm Doug Letterman, and until next week, stay well and stay safe.